Welcome back, dear listeners. This is Charlotte, Creative and Technical Director at Evidence for Faith. I hope you're having as much fun as I am just going through this series titled Science in the Bible. We are on lesson six. And in this series, Michael will be talking about oceanography and all the wonderful wonders of the ocean seafloor. So as always, you can find the video version, PowerPoint worksheet, and other resources at our website at evidenceforfaith.org. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org. You can also directly support this broadcast and help us keep it free by donating at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. And with that, here is Michael in Oceanography. Welcome to Evidence for Faith with me, your host, Michael Lane. And today we're going to be talking about oceanography in the Bible. This is a fascinating topic and stuff. And do you know that there have actually been scientists that have made scientific discoveries, not using a textbook, different types of textbooks, but using the Word of God, the Bible. Yes, this has really happened. And, and you get into oceanography in the Bible in this lesson today, we're gonna to see about one person in particular made some major discoveries, totally changed the way that we view um, science in the Bible and, and just science in general, simply because he was not just a Christian, he studied his Bible very carefully. And what he found in the book of Jonah and the book of uh, Psalms and stuff and others, he, he found scientific principles that went against, the bio, uh, went against science during his day. Science had said the total opposite of what it was saying in the Bible. And so often what we find is on these occasions when this happens, where science is saying one thing and the Bible actually states something else, um, what usually happens is science sort of catches us up finally and catches up and sees, wow, the Bible was correct all along. Every one of these lessons that we've been doing in this series, we keep seeing this. This keeps happening over and over and over. And today, um, this one is just absolutely amazing. The discoveries that came to science directly out of the Bible, which was contrary to what was being taught in academia, in universities, and in schools of the day. So as we get into this, we're going to be talking about uh, different aspects of not just oceanography. We're going to include a little bit of marine science in here, also like a little marine biology, but we're just going to call it oceanography. And we're going to get into this lesson today. So are you game? You're ready to, to um, pump some neurons and, and start seeing how accurate the Bible really is? Oh, this is so exciting, isn't it? So let's get into it. The first topic I want to cover today is having to do with currents in the sea. Now, I'm not talking about little raisins. We're talking about currents, the motion of the water. Now, probably many of you have been to the ocean and, you know, there's things called rip currents. Those can be very deadly. But I'm talking about ocean currents, like out in the ocean, out in the middle of the ocean, that there's currents. Now, you see, for, for much of human history, going back into ancient times, academia taught that the oceans primarily were just vast pools of water and that they were just sort of stagnant pools, that waves would come along and move, um, you know, uh, the, the hapa, the surface of the water, but down below and stuff, there were, they didn't think there was any currents. They thought it was just big stagnant pools of water that without any organized currents. That's what they, they taught. They thought this from ancient times, even up to not that long ago. Um, currents 
we're known to land dwellers. If you're standing next to the shore, you can see sometimes little currents here. Um, and they get the idea that um, as you go out into the middle of something, like a, if you're on a big lake, for instance, and there at your shoreline, if the wind's blowing, you see waves, but you don't see things moving through the water very quickly on a lake. Rivers, you do. You stand on the bank of the river, you throw a, a coconut or something into the water. Uh, I guess you don't have those maybe where you live, but if you throw a coconut in the water or anything, you will see if it floats, it bobbles down and keeps going because there's a current. And land dwellers knew about these rivers having these, but big ponds and stuff, you didn't see this. You drop something in the water, it sort of just sort of stays there outside of winds blowing it. So they didn't think that the oceans had these currents because they're so big. But like I say, just standing around on a shoreline, you could throw something into the river. And we used to live by the Kankakee River in Illinois. That's a very fast flowing river in certain areas. Or if you've been up to Niagara Falls, whoa, that river really moves quickly. So some of them move real fast. They have very, very organized, very, very quick and swift paths of water flowing. But the ocean, they said, doesn't have that because they're different. Um, the only thing you're going to get having move around and it will be uh, in water movement is done by the wind or waves. And it, what's going to happen is it's what is going to happen is random, unorganized patterns that you might find in the ocean. And this is what was taught for a long time. You know, it wasn't until the 1700s that they started to question a lot of this that they, they started to think that maybe that's not quite right, that maybe there were uh, currents moving through, but they weren't really sure on it that the oceans, as big as they are, could have currents. And it wouldn't be until actually, um, the first person we know of recording anything about this, scientifically now we're talking, was around 1513. Off the coast of Florida, the Spanish explorer Ponce de Leon Love saying that. that's a fun name to say, isn't it? That's a lot more exciting than Michael Lane, Ponce de Leon. Anyway, he was sailing along and along the coast of Florida, down through the Florida Keys and up the East Coast, and he and also went into the Gulf Coast. But he noticed something as he was sailing through the Keys and up along the coast that the water, if the ocean now, seemed to be moving in the way that he put it, sort of like a river out in the ocean. This was very mind-boggling. No one had really talked much about this, and he thought, wow, this is amazing. Well, he noted the discovery in his journal and stuff in the log, but he, not much was done with it. Academia sort of just like, well, that's interesting, and they didn't explore it or do much more with it. It wouldn't be, and that was in, in the 1500s. When you get to the 1700s, a very famous person by the name of Benjamin Franklin. Yes, one of our founding fathers. If you recall, he was an inventor. Um, he published many books and papers and stuff. He, he did a lot of the scientific discoveries besides just helping form our country. Well, he gathered information also about a current, the same thing that Ponce de Leon talked about on the east coast of the United States. And he thought this is very interesting. And so he contacts his cousin. He had a cousin, uh, Timothy um, Folger was his name. Uh, I don't think it's related to coffee. But Timothy Folger was a sea captain um, that made trips from the colonies to England and sailed through these waters off the east coast of the United States frequently. And talking with him, he found out that there seemed to be what Ponce de Leon was talking about. There is like a river in the ocean. So as Benjamin Franklin, he loved to write, he actually put this down. And today we know this as the Gulf Stream. If you have been to the Florida Keys or the east coast of Florida, um, Georgia, 
South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, you know about this warm current coming up from the south, riding on the east side of the United States, the Gulf Stream. And it was actually titled and stuff. And Benjamin Franklin actually gets a lot of credit for this. In many books, it'll say that he discovered it. Actually, it was Timothy uh, Folger who put it onto Ben Franklin. And actually, it was Ponce de Leon who first found out about it. But even so, little did people know that ocean currents weren't just on the east coast of the United States. They're all over the place. They're in all of the oceans. They're all from the Arctic to the Indian to the Pacific to the Atlantic. You find in the oceans these rivers flowing. And what's fascinating is the river might, uh, the, the current might be flowing at one direction on top, but if you go down below, scuba divers, if you've uh, dove deep, you know that sometimes currents go in different directions. On top of the boat, your current might be going, say, towards the east, and then you go down maybe 120 feet or so, and you'll see the currents in a different direction. There's different currents at different depths, and uh, we do know that today. And it's one thing when you go get your scuba license, you learn about stuff like this, that currents underwater are there. Well, they didn't know about this. And how did all this change then? How did we finally come out under uh, understanding and learning about these ocean currents, which are all over the world? It was a Navy captain. His name was Matthew Morey, and he was a US Navy captain. More importantly, he was a Christian. He was an astute student of the Bible. He grew up, basically his schooling was all done because he entered in his later teens into the U.S. Navy um, as a midshipman and he worked his way up to becoming captain. Um, in the early 1800s, he was doing this. He went to sea when he was just 19 years old, got all of his education as they did in those days. There was no Annapolis Naval College or anything. You learned on board ship. And the captains and uh, the officers and stuff would teach you mathematics and geography and, and all sorts of things. And, and so that was his schooling. Yet he studied the Bible very carefully. He was deeply devoted to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And one time, as he's sitting and studying his Bible, doing a Bible study, just like we all should do, because that's how we grow spiritually, he was studying the book of Psalms and he made a discovery that went against everything he'd ever been taught in science. And what it was, it's Psalm chapter eight. Now, let me read this for you. This is gonna be out of the English Standard Version, but this is what Psalm eight, three through eight says. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. That last verse, Psalm 8, 8, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. As Matthew Morey was sitting there studying this and contemplating this verse, he realized something that went against everything that was in his science books, that was in being taught to him in science, that there were no ocean currents and stuff. He was like, the Bible says there's paths in the sea. Now, that means there has to be like rivers, because that's the way people often associate it, like rivers in the oceans and stuff. Paths of the sea, rivers in an ocean, ocean currents. Now, please understand, 
This goes totally against what science was teaching at the time and had taught for centuries. But he then began on his own, started to study the ocean currents as his ship that he was sailing on was sailing all around. And he begins to study this and finds out, wow, there are ocean currents. And even at various depths, they were finding different ocean currents. So he was like, this is just absolutely amazing stuff. So he started to uh, record this information. And he found exactly what the Bible says, that there are currents, there's paths in the sea. And he was sailing on a ship called the USS Falmouth, um, Falmouth, Falmouth, whatever, <laughs> the Falmouth. And as he was sailing around the ocean, he began keeping records of everything he was finding as he was testing all of this. And then afterwards, um, he actually published a book called Wind and Current Charts. This book revolutionized naval science. And not just that, it's science in general, because he now charted the different currents all over the seas because he actually circumnavigated the world uh, during his voyages. And he recorded all this, published this in a book. It was an amazing because it was, it was instantly found to be true. And every basic Navy in the, um, that had contact with us actually used his book. Uh, for sailing charts and stuff, for back in those days, it was sailing vessels. They didn't have a lot of steam power and stuff yet. And so they did a lot of sailing and the currents actually changed your, your route. If you just try and sail straight, the currents can really mess you up. So he actually published all this. Other navies began using it and what a discovery. Because of this, by the way, don't forget, he found this by reading the Bible. <laughs> Totally different from science. He finds it by reading the Bible, and he is today called the Pathfinder of the Seas. Matter of fact, if you go to his grave, his gravestone actually has Psalm 8, 8 on it, and it says the Pathfinder of the Sea right underneath his name. Later on, though, um, he's also known in the science of oceanography as the father of oceanography because he found he made a lot of discoveries dealing with um, the marine world and the ocean oceanography itself. Later in 1855, he actually wrote another book called The Physical Geography. And in this, I'm just going to quote a section from this book for you having to do with the currents. Look what he wrote. There is a river in the ocean. In the severest droughts, it never fails. And in the mightiest floods, it never overflows. Its banks and bottom are of cold water, while its current is of warm. The Gulf of Mexico is its fountain, and its mouth is in the Arctic seas. It is the Gulf Stream. There is in the world no other majestic flow of waters. Its current is more rapid than the Mississippi or the Amazon." Unquote. He's talking about the Gulf Stream specifically and, and its discovery and stuff. The guy nailed it. He got it right. That it, it is from the south. The Gulf Stream brings warm water all the way up. And that's why one reason London is so well known for its fogs and stuff. It's because that water comes up from the, the tropics and goes up along into the North Atlantic. So Murray, Matthew Murray was a scientist who strongly believed in the Bible. And his whole thing was, this is what this is so important and how this fits into this series. Even if a science concept being taught in academia if it's different than what you find in the Bible, what's in the Bible is going to be true. Now, Matthew Morey, as we've talked with others, uh, we've mentioned other scientists like this that goes against what science says. The Bible find, uh, is found to be true. 
That's what's most remarkable about this. Why not? If it's coming from a holy, uh, perfect God, any science concept that's in there is going to be true. Now, as I've said in every lesson, the Bible, this is not a science textbook. It's not a science textbook. But what science you're going to find in here is we're going to continue in this study. We're only halfway through. And as we continue in the study, you're going to see more and more truths that went against what science was teaching, yet what's in here written in ancient history is still true to this day. And there's no provable science error in this book. That is just remarkable. Absolutely fascinating. Now, let's talk about another one. Another topic that we're going to talk about here with oceanography is mountains under the sea. Mountains under the sea. What does that have to do with? Well, they used to teach for centuries, science taught um, in academia and in textbooks and stuff, that the ocean floor is totally flat. It's just a flat plane. From the Eastern Hemisphere to the Western Hemisphere, it's just totally, totally flat. Now, I can understand how they came up with this concept because in um, Europe and in Africa and the Middle East, you find lakes. Uh, many of these lakes, not all, but many of these lakes are shallow and they have a very, very flat bottom. Very flat. I was just talking yesterday about um, Lake Okeechobee, or not Lake Okeechobee, the one here in Wisconsin. Um, Oh, I cannot think of the name of it, over by Oshkosh. Um, oh, the famous lake there. I have it and I can't think of it. But anyway, it's a huge lake. And the thing is, it is um, so shallow. I almost think in some cases, you could probably just walk halfway across the lake. Many years ago, I took uh, some friends of ours, took us out in a pontoon boat. We went out into the middle of this lake. Um, and as we were out there, we stopped the boat and we thought, well, let's jump over the side and see what, you know, how, uh, just go for a swim on a hot summer day. And the guy who was taking us out says, just don't jump off the boat. Make sure you have enough so you don't hit your head or something. So I did. I went up to the bow of this pontoon boat and I started to lower myself. And I lowered myself. We're out in the middle of the lake now. And I lowered myself to not even my armpits. The water was only about five feet deep. And I was like, are you kidding? Are we on a seamount or something here? He says, no, this lake is really shallow. I went scuba diving one time in a place in Indiana called Bass Lake. Never been there before, but we went to this place, a friend of mine who's also a scuba diver. This is back when we were in college. And we went scuba diving in a place called Bass Lake. Huge lake, very well known for fishing and stuff, water skiing. They have a lot of sports there. And we went there. We took a boat ourselves. We loaded up all of our dive gear. We had our wetsuits and everything on, and we load up our dive gear, and we go out to the middle of the lake. We drop a dive flag, and I'm the first one to go over. I go over, and um, my partner is, our plan was I was going to go down first. He was going to follow me, and as I leaned over the boat and went over, um, I, then I just stood there right by the boat, and he said, um, boy, you're really buoyant. you got too much air in your buoyancy compensator. You're pretty floating. I said, I'm standing. We're like a mile offshore. <laughs> Finally, a boat comes over to us, very slowly trolling up to us, and they go, are you guys trying to dive here? And we said, yeah, we're not from around here. Well, yeah, you're, you're right. You're not from around here. This lake is really, really shallow all through this section. But there is a hole over on one side that goes down about 35, 40 feet. If you want, we'll take you over there, which they did. And it was. It was just a small little section we went down. There wasn't much to see in that lake anyway. But the point is, they thought you, they used to think that water was very, very um, shallow in lakes and stuff. So... Why not attribute that to the ocean? That the ocean also will have a smooth bottom to it. And that's what they used to teach. They called it the abyssal plane. So they get this idea from uh, the abyssal plane from pretty much just studying and uh, swimming around in lakes and stuff. That's how they get the idea. Now, as we already stated, there was a scientist 
a naval captain in the U.S. Navy, Matthew Murray, very, very uh, devoted Christian, very, very devoted to his Lord Jesus Christ, studied his Bible very carefully, didn't read it as a novel, he studied it. And because of that, he grew spiritually. And he was looking for answers to life, and he found more than that because he started finding scientific principles in the Bible. Because he believed that if God said something in his word, it's going to be true no matter what science says of its day. He's going to believe the Bible. Well, he came across this one day. He was reading Psalm 104, and the verses are 5 through 9. Let's read this together out of the English Standard Version. Psalm 104, 5 through 9. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. Okay, this opening statement of this paragraph tells us, this is talking about creation. When God was creating the world, there was water and then the earth formed underneath. But you notice that it says mountains. Now, it does say mountains came up, but that there were valleys. Between mountains, if you've been to the Appalachians or the Rockies, between mountains, there's valleys. It's not a flat plain in a lot of places. And he's like, he had traveled around, he knew these things, and so he's like, wow, this sounds like there's mountains under the sea. So that's what this time about. And it says, waters stood above the mountains. Mountains rose, valleys sank. So if that's true, if the Bible's true, what science has been saying, he's reasoning, that the ocean is a flat like a table of this flat abyssal plain. He says that cannot be true. There's gotta be mountains under the ocean and valleys, deep trenches and stuff. So that was really new. But as he was studying, he also came across a passage in Jonah. In the book of Jonah, chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, again, we're going to read out of the English Standard Version because this is a word-for-word -word translation. It says, The waters closed in to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds wrapped around my head. And at the root of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This is a fantastic verse because under the Holy, Holy Spirit's influence, the, the Holy Spirit is telling Jonah what to write as of his experience. And he's writing about the roots of mountains under the seas. That is amazing. Now, you see what happened? Maury's reading this. Maury's already, because of Psalms, he's catching stuff like this. And he's like, oh my gosh, there's mountains under the sea. Science has been wrong because it's talking about mountains protruding up from the seafloor. So it indicates that the ocean floor is not a flat basisal plain, which is what everybody had been teaching for centuries, that there's mountains under there. So what does Maury do? He says, okay, the Bible says this, science says this. I'm gonna believe the Bible, so I'm gonna test it. Great scientist. So he gets, because he's in the US Navy, he gets a ship and he goes out and he starts doing soundings out in the ocean, in the Atlantic. He did all this in the Atlantic, and he starts, what a sounding is, if you're not familiar. Sounding, a ship is out in the ocean, and they take a leaded weight, and they drop it down on a line until it hits the bottom. Once it hits the bottom, then they take the measurement. Then they move over, and they drew it again, and they do it again. 
By doing this, they can graph what the bottom looks like so they get an idea. Today we have modern sonar and we can photograph the whole thing for miles and miles, square miles. But back then you had to do it by doing soundings. And so he started doing this and also the U.S. Navy was not the only one. The British Navy was also doing soundings upon this idea. And he compiled the information from the different navies that were doing soundings and he found out that there were indeed mountains under the Atlantic Ocean. One massive mountain range he discovered, he called it the Dolphin Rise. Uh, the reason he called it that had nothing to do with dolphins swimming around. It was the name of the ship he was on, the USS Dolphin, where he was doing this study. And he found out that this, this huge rise, which he called the Dolphin Rise, stretched the entire ocean north to south. This thing was huge, gigantic. And so he publishes his work in 1854 in a book that he wrote called uh, Bathmetrical Map of the North Atlantic Basin. Catchy title. And it contained in this, he actually contained the first detailed mappings of the ocean floor. This was revolutionary in science. This is just in the 1850s. This is revolutionary to everything because this totally changed everything that we knew about the ocean bottom. In the very next year after that, in the book that he wrote before called The Physical Geography, he actually included a paragraph about this. And he writes this, quote, Could the waters of the Atlantic be drawn off so as to expose the view of this great sea gash which separates continents and extends from the Arctic to the Antarctic? It would present a scene the most rugged, grand, and imposing. The very ribs of the solid earth with the foundations of the seas, taking that right out of the Bible, would be brought to light, unquote. He, he, he mentions this and he's talking about what would later be called the uh, Mid-Atlantic Range because that would be studied and they would change the name from the Dolphin Rise to Mid-Atlantic Range. But you know something, that didn't happen until about 100 years later. More oceanographers had to go out and test this to make sure that Maury's data was correct. So ships went out and they kept testing this and this kept being tested until, believe it or not, the 1950s. Once sonar started coming along um, as, as a result of like World War II, they started getting better maps and stuff. And today, like I say, with modern equipment and technology, we can get beautiful images of the ocean floor. You can see massive mountain ranges and valleys, roots of mountains. Hawaii itself is like the tallest mountain in the world because it starts so deep at the ocean and comes up. Its root is so far down, yet it breaks the surface and goes for thousands of feet above sea level. It's magnificently large and there, there's mountains like this all through the oceans. And they have now found that they're all over the oceans. It's just not the Atlantic. So today, yes, it's called the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. It's usually a geography question in school and stuff. But all of this was because because of a naval captain who was a Christian who said, you know something, I'm gonna believe the Bible over what science is teaching because I believe that is perfect. Science is flawed and has to constantly keep changing. That was it, which takes us to another discovery. This one, I remember when this one happened, not that it happened in ancient history. Um, it happened in 1977. It was in the winter of 1977. Um, I was at college at the time and at a Christian university and I was there and um, I remember being in the geology department and um, a discovery was made that everybody got excited. Now I didn't hear what exactly was going on at the beginning, but in the geology department, I was spending a lot of time in the science department building, um, 
I just know that something was going on in geology because everybody was getting very excited about it. And what it was was this. In 1977, I believe it's, this actually happened, I think it was in February, though it wasn't announced for a month later, um, there was um, submersible equipment. They were exploring the bottom of the oceans, mapping it from what Maury had found. They are still working on this in 1977. And they were going off the Galapagos Islands, which is off the coast of Chile in the Pacific. And they were in super, super deep water, very, very deep. And they're going along and that water is very, very cold. And as they're going along, all of a sudden they noticed as they were towing this unmanned submersible, as they're towing along, they realized, wow, the temperature uh, thermometer on this thing indicated the temperature's going up really high. And then just a few moments later, it went back down to normal. And they're like, what was that? Why, why is that so hot? And so they tested some more. They brought the, they, uh, the next day, they sent the, the same thing down and they went back over to the same spot and they saw the hot temperature again. So eventually what they did is they sent down a manned submersible. They took photographs and stuff at first. They, they didn't have manned submersibles with them, but they went down, they took photographs and what they found was just amazing. It looked like chimneys coming up out of the earth, spewing black smoke, but it was super hot. So they contact um, Dr. Uh, Ballard from Woods Holes um, in, up in Massachusetts. He's the guy who discovered the Titanic and the Bismarck and a host of other ships. And they had him, because he's a geologist, come and they brought a submersible called the Alvin and they went down and looked at it and they could see these things and there was life around here where normally it was just barren. There's tons of, of um, mollusks, clams, uh, worms, polychaetes, all sorts of different things, even a purple octopus crawling around on the bottom. And they're photographing this. This is just amazing stuff. And the Alvin, as they approached one of these black smokers, as they were calling them, because that's what they look like, black smoke coming out of a chimney, the Alvin, with its uh, mechanical arm, had a temperature probe, and they moved it and positioned it and started moving in close to the black smoke. And then they noticed something. The temperature kept going up, but then their readings went bad because the temperature probe melted. Because the temperature coming out of there was around 750 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 400 degrees Celsius. Lead melts at that temperature as tin and many other metals. It's that hot of water coming out. It wasn't smoke, it was water. And they were like, what in the world? This was a major discovery. So these are natural springs. As they've studied these, they found out that these are natural underground or underwater springs at the floor of the ocean. And like I said, they're sometimes called black smokers by their appearance. Um, they have a chimney-like structure. But what's happening is seawater all around, cold seawater is seeping into cracks in the crust, which we talked about in the last lesson in geology. The cracks of the earth, seawater seeps into this. Well, right under the crust is the mantle, molten um, iron and stuff, magma. And as the uh, water seeps in there, it starts to boil. And as it's, um, it gets so hot, it can't really boil. It's so hot because it's under pressure too, but it breaks through where the mantle's very close to the top of the, of the crust. And it breaks through. And as it's moving across the mantle, the water molecules are picking up minerals, iron, magnesium, and other things. A lot of different chemicals are mixing in with the water and it's coming out and it looks black. It's so it's so deep in the ocean that the, the water pressure prevents the water from actually boiling. That's how hot it is, but how much pressure. that um, would boil towards the surface, but it doesn't. And there's creatures down there living all around these things. These underwater natural springs. 
in the ocean. But like I say, because of high pressure, they can't boil because there's so much pressure and that affects um, how water boils. But this mineral water coming up out of the earth, springs filling into the ocean. Wow, amazing. Now, as I said, this discovery totally shocked the world. It was big news uh, back in the 1977 because just a few decades before, as we just talked about with uh, Matthew Morey and mapping the oceans, they had just mapped a lot of this, and now they're finding totally new discovery they didn't know anything about. And so this was fascinating to everyone. So scientists knew very little about the bottom of the ocean. Isn't it interesting? We've been to the moon, yet we still don't know what's at the bottom of the oceans on our own planet. And that's what they started finding out. Today, as far as I've been able to research, I know that there's over 240 of these deep, sea thermal vents located around the globe. Some of them are even in some uh, lakes in Asia. Um, deep water lakes, I believe uh, up in uh, Russia, there is one that they have actually sent down and found at the bottom. It's very super deep water. These things are everywhere. They sort of follow where uh, the plates, um, plate tectonics sort of go together. And that's where they found them, like the ring of fire that's known um, in geology. It follows a lot of those, but not all of them. But this shouldn't surprise Christians. It shouldn't surprise us. Why? Because the word of God is true. And because the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, as we've talked about before, Job is the oldest book. When it was written, we don't know, scholars can't agree, but from the descriptions and stuff that are given in here and the names, it seems to be sometime after the flood to about the time of Abraham. So somewhere in that span, it's the oldest book written before Moses and stuff. But in this book, it describes something of what we're talking about. You go to Job chapter 38, verse 16. Let's read this together. This is God speaking to Job. He says, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Stop there. Springs of the sea in the deep. Isn't that deep sea thermal vents? Today, scientists now we now like realize, <laughs> wow, it's amazing. The Bible has this scientific fact in here, and we didn't know it for centuries, not until 1977. How amazing is that, that this book, so old, has this scientific fact in it? Well, let's go to one more before we leave you here. Um, this one's sort of fun. We're going to be doing a, I, I do commonly, I've done series on the book of Jonah. And we'll talk about, we're going to publish a, a thing on Jonah uh, upcoming sometime in our near future. But one thing, there's, there's something having to do with marine science with Jonah, and of course, that's the great fish having to do with Jonah. Now, I have told you before, if you've listened to some of our lessons, I have many times been invited to sit and talk with atheists. I have a lot of friends that are atheists and, um, and agnostics and stuff. But I've talked with a number of atheists, and I have asked, actually asked them, why don't you believe in God? Why don't you believe in the Bible specifically? Many cases, they give me the exact same answer. Um, when I ask them, why can't you believe in the Bible? They said, mostly it's down to one verse. There's one verse that we just can't accept about the Bible. And that gives us the strongest reason not to believe in the Bible. And this is probably not true of all atheists, but many atheists that I know of, and these are scientists, um, the ones I'm talking about here, uh, very, very educated people. And they say it comes down to Jonah chapter one, verse 17. Jonah chapter one, verse 17 is the reason I've been told this many times. It's the reason I can't believe in the Bible. So what's Jonah 117? Well, we know the story about Jonah and, uh, being swallowed by a great fish. Well, here it is out of the English Standard Version. Let's see what this verse is that seems to be such a hang-up for so many people. 
as being a science problem that they can't believe in the Bible. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Right there. And they said, it's, they always point to the first part of that. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And the guy lives in it. He's in stasis. He's still alive. How in the world can that happen? There's no way scientifically possible, they say. So they say, not going to buy it. Won't get into it. Don't believe in the Bible because of that. Huh. So basically what they have told me is they can't believe this passage. They can't believe the Bible because the Bible talks about a sea creature, a fish, if you will, or whatever. Some people call it a whale, and I'll explain why they do that. But they don't believe that um, this could swallow a person and he stay alive for a period of time and then be spit out. Well, let's take a look at this scientifically, but also from what the Bible says. Now, we know what the Bible says. Pointed a great fish. Notice it says, this is the English Standard Version, so we're using a word-for-word -word translation, and what we're getting here is the word great fish, not whale. It's different, but this is what we're going to get into, and you got to remember that to identify what this is, we aren't told. We're just told a great fish. We're not told. He doesn't say it's a sea bass or something, a goliath grouper or whatever. It used to be called Jewfish because they do swallow people at times, but no way could a person live for three days, three nights in stasis in one. So um, we got to remember that the, the point of this whole story with Jonah isn't necessarily the identity of the fish. There's where a lot of people get, get caught up. What was the species of the fish? God doesn't give us any idea. He calls it a great fish. That's all he says. Instead, what God wants us to focus on is what is the story taking place here? What's going on? It's not the species that's important. It's what Jonah is experiencing. That's what's important. That's what you want to focus on because this story of Jonah symbolizes what happened to Jesus. It's talking about Jesus's death. Being, Jonah being inside the, the great sea creature, this fish um, for three days parallels to what Jesus is going to be crucified and put into the tomb for three days. And that's how this goes together. Matter of fact, Jesus himself draws this conclusion and makes this point. That this symbolism here, he talks about it in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, let's take a look at this again. Out of the English Standard Version, it says, this is Jesus speaking, for just as Jonah was, in, was three days and, and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So we see the exact same thing. Jesus is taking, and by, by the way, you catching this, Jesus is saying this is a historical thing. He's not talking about some mythical story. He's talking about an event because what he's going to experience is also an actual event. Historical, historical. That's what he's doing here. Just like that, it's going to happen to me and it's going to prove who I am. Now, is this against science? Well, we're not going to get into a lot of detail here. We'll do that in the Jonah series. But what are some possibilities of a fish? What possible fish could be out there that's able to swallow a man whole and contain him in stasis alive for a period of time? Well, to answer this question, there are a couple of ideas that I have that we can put before you here. Um, and possibly a very, very reasonable uh, solution to this answer, um, this science answer, which is not that hard to come to. In Jonah, the animal is called in an English Standard Version, a great fish. Now, go back, this was written in Hebrew, so go back and see what the word for great fish was. It's the word dog. Dog is a literal word meaning a fish, not a whale. 
No, it's not a whale. Some translations misinterpret this and have called it a whale. No, it's, it's not the Hebrew word for whale. That's where you get the word. The word in Hebrew for whale is Levaten, which where we get the word Leviathan. Um, that's what this is. And that is not the words being used here. And so it's, it's, this specifically says a fish. Now, even if it was a whale, there's only one species of whale that we have today that is capable of swallowing a man whole and containing him for time. There have been, on rare occasions, these things have happened back in whaling seasons. Sperm whales have a, an esophagus large enough to swallow a man. A blue whale, um, a humpback whale or whatever, their esophagus, even though they're huge in size, their esophagus is only a few inches in diameter. No way can a human go through that to get into, uh, after the, the mouth, get into the digestive cavity. Can't happen. Um, sperm whales, you can. It's a tight squeeze, but it is possible to get in there. But the word in Jonah is the word for fish. It's not the word for whale. Even though some people say, well, wait a minute, I thought the Bible says it is a whale. Well, the King James Version, the 1611 King James Version, uh, written in 1611, has the Matthew account reading this way. This is out of the King James. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, the, what is going on here is this talks about whale, but, um, or... I mean, that's the King James Version. But the thing is, this is written in Greek. The Greek word that's being used here in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, is the word ketos. Now, ketos actually means, in its transliteration, the closest we can come to it in English, is sea monster. Though in some writings, it is used for whale. That's probably why the writers of the King James Version in 1611 chose that for ketos. But the thing is, the ancient Greek does have a specific word for fish. It's called ichthys. The thing is, that's not what's used here. So it's not, it, basically, Matthew is not using the word for fish, though Jonah did. Here we're using the word sea monster, more or less. The New American Standard, which is a one of the most accurate translations we have has the animal being more correctly identified as a sea monster. Here's what it says in the New American Standard. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So here you see we're getting a more accurate translation, a sea monster. Now, if the creature was a sea monster, what could it have been? Well. I believe one possibility is a thing called a mosasaur. Um, mosasaurs did exist. They were huge reptilian creatures that um, swam back um, during the days of the ark and stuff like this and before the ark. Um, I have a model of one I'm holding here. You can see it's reptile, uh, reptilian in its structure. Um, I believe that this is an animal that's actually described throughout the Bible as Leviathan. Um, that's a lesson that we do on dinosaurs in the Bible, and we talk about this. This thing is gigantic. You, you have maybe seen one. If you've ever watched that um, franchise of movies called Jurassic Park, there's one of these where, uh, one of the latter ones that was made, where um, they have a big um, pool and um, people are sitting around the pool like at a, an amusement park and there's a huge animal that's in there and they um, are dropping large uh, animals like great white sharks and stuff. This thing comes up out of the water and eats it and swims back down. And at the end of the movie, it's the thing that kills the bad dinosaur, uh, is a mosasaur. 
that's those things did exist. We have fossils of these things. We know they existed, and it's an aquatic creature. Could this have been? This would be Leviathan, but it's not the word that's used. Though this could possibly do it. Now, what its internal structure is like, we don't know. It's reptilian. That's all we know about this. Well, what else could there be? If it's if it wasn't this extinct dinosaur, and I hope they're extinct. If it's not this extinct dinosaur. Is it possible, just take for a moment, is it possible that God created a special creature just for Jonah? And that's why we have the little confusing text here. Remember, God's not trying to give us the identity of the, of the organism, the animal. He's more concerned with what we're learning about the story. That's what's important because it's a prophecy having to do with the Messiah. There's where we should focus. Not so much like, well, I don't know if I can believe the whole Bible because God's not giving me the identity of the fish. <laughs> It's not that necessary, but there are ways of explaining this in science. Now, if the creature was a fish, as it says in Jonah, it's definitely uh, most likely a fish. What kind of fish can actually swallow a man and hold him for a length of time in stasis? Well, there's a fish that's called the uh, giant or Goliath grouper. Um, it used to be called Jewfish until just recently because it's not politically correct to say that anymore. They're big sea basses, big groupers that do, in the oceans, they do swallow divers at time, but you can't, they only get the whole, like the torso, the head, arms, and torso is all they can en enclose inside their body. And then they swim to the surface and they spit the, uh, the person out, the diver out. There's been articles about this in like Skin Diver magazines and others talking about being swallowed by a Jewfish. I don't think that's it because there's no way it could, a person's going to live in, in stasis for that for a period of time. But there are some other things. Great white sharks. Great white sharks have the capability of swallowing someone whole. Big 25-footer can easily do that. We know that because we have found dolphins, intact dolphins inside of great white sharks with no mark on them. Huge dolphins. A dolphin is bigger than a human. And given the size of a person in Jonah's day, uh, the average height of a, um, of a person in, in that area, he's from the Galilee area, would have been around five foot four, an average man's height, easily fit inside of a great white. And it is scientifically possible to be uh, surviving this for a period of time um, and still come out alive. It is possible. It's never happened as far as I'm aware of, but scientifically it is possible. But maybe it was something else. Maybe it was something called a megalodon. Now, let me just take you. This is dealing with sharks, great whites we were just talking about. And I want to show you here just for a second. I have the jaws of a shark. This is a, um, these are real. This is a, um, the jaws of a just shark, and the thing is about sharks, sharks lose their teeth frequently. And the reason they lose their teeth is they have, God designed these creatures to have teeth that have overlapping teeth. And when a tooth starts to get dull, it just falls out. And you can see in the image here, there's other um, teeth sitting in the back. It would be under the gums and stuff, and they keep making new teeth. And these other teeth then, if I sort of turn from maybe this direction, you can see that there's another layer of teeth. The ones out here get dull, they fall out, and then another one sort of comes in. Here's one that's partially coming in. This one here, it's not bent totally in the right shape yet. And they just keep like a conveyor belt of teeth coming out. So we have shark teeth. And you can go to tourist stores and places and find these frequently. Well, there is a type of shark that did exist called a megalodon. Uh, its scientific name used to be Carcharodon megalodon, but they've changed that just recently into Otitis uh, megalodon. And here is a 
this is a museum copy of the size of one of their teeth. Now, what's fascinating about sharks is you can tell the species of shark by its teeth. God gave them all different types of teeth. And there's hundreds of species of sharks. They all have different types of teeth. That's why if there's a shark attack, if they find a tooth which comes off easily embedded in the victim, they can then identify what the, t uh, the shark is. They can also tell the length of the shark and how wide its jaws are. Marine biologists have discovered that if you measure across um, the length of the tooth and then the height of the tooth, uh, there's mathematical formulas in nature that just God designed that we can figure out the size of sharks, um, how long they were and stuff. Now this one here is a tooth, it's a copy, this is actually a museum copy of a megalodon tooth. And you can see this thing is almost six inches, uh, over 15 centimeters in length. This thing is huge. This one here would have easily gone um, easily 55 feet long, huge. Its mouth of this one here would have been large enough to swallow a 15 passenger van. Swallow, not bite and chew in chunks, swallow. There's a famous picture of one of these um, that used to be in the Museum of Natural History in New York showing 16 adult men sitting inside the jaws. You can find it in some great books. There's a, an awesome book on, on sharks called Shadows of the Sea. You can buy it on Amazon. I have a couple of copies of it. I just find it fascinating. And it has that famous picture, but I'm sure you could probably Google it and see six adult scientists sitting inside the jaws of one of these sharks. I mean, sitting actually inside the jaws of a shark. These things were huge. Now, as I said, this one here that I've got here in front of you that you're seeing, this is a museum copy. Well, if there's somebody from Missouri who says, well, I can't believe it unless I see the real thing. Okay, let's show you a real one. This was given to me by a, a paleontologist a number of years ago. Um, this one here, it's a little smaller, but you can see it's a fossil tooth. You can buy these, like I say, in stores or on the internet and stuff. They're very expensive real ones. If somebody's selling you one and it's only uh, like $150, $200, it's probably a fake. Um, the real ones, they're very expensive um, if they're in good shape and stuff like this. But you can see this is a real fossilized tooth of a megalodon. These things get huge. This one here is um, probably, as I measured this out and ran the formulas on this, this one here comes out to just under 50 feet long. So they are huge. So these things, well, I'll just leave that there. These sharks did exist. We know because the fossils are here. They seem to be because the shape of the tooth is very similar. This tooth here is very similar to what would a great white have. So that's why they put them in the same family first as great whites. And we know a lot about great whites. Um, we know that they got at least 50 feet long. And if you watch Shark Week, they often have a couple of things about this. Matter of fact, they've made movies about Megalodon and stuff. So you've seen, you've probably been associated with some of them, uh, a lot of these fictional movies. But there are scientists that say that they have measured some of these and found fossil teeth that go up to almost 90 feet long. That would be very rare, but it does appear that they could get that length. 90 feet could easily swallow a bus. Um, it could have been 15 Jonah's riding to Nineveh and that thing and all get swollen, uh, swallowed at the same time. Um, I am showing you an illustration here with different, uh, this is um, just a, a simple picture. This one here is about, um, oh, uh, it's not super long. It's just under 50 feet long. You can see a, a great white um, like shape to it and everything. And here at the bottom is a, an adult man diver, six foot like diver. Um, and you can see, or five foot five, size diver as he's next to this. Even this, this one here, even though it's only 52 feet long, could easily swallow a person. We know these things existed, and this is a fish. 
Don't lose sight of that. These are fish. The Bible states in Jonah, this was a fish and it's large enough to swallow a grown man, even though we hope they don't exist anymore. I mean, actually, the, move, uh, the book Jaws was written to be not a great white as much as it was supposed to be a megalodon that was still swimming around. But anyway, uh, they're just like great whites, only really big. But these things did exist, and they did exist, we know, in Bible times and stuff, because they were around. We see their fossils and stuff, and you can go to many places along the east coast of the United States and the Gulf of Mexico, and actually, you can go almost anywhere around the world, you find these teeth. And the reason there's so many of them is because sharks constantly lose teeth with meals, and they're constantly re replacing them. Lemon sharks will lose over 250,000 teeth in their lifetime. Glad I'm not the tooth fairy having to pop out a quarter every time for that. But anyway, we have shown you that this is not a scientific error in the Bible, Jonah being swallowed by a fish. There's definitely creatures on the planet that could have done this. The time frame might be what's messing some people up. Um, that gets into something else. We'll have lessons having to do with the, the Bible times. And, or if you get a chance to listen to our Jonah, uh, or I'm sorry, our uh, dinosaurs, evidence of dinosaurs in the Bible video, you can, you can uh, hear about that. But the thing is, there's mosasaurs, there's other aquatic reptiles that were around. Uh, we have sharks, great whites, we have megalodon. It's very, very feasible that there was some type of animal that could have swallowed Jonah. The Bible's not an error here. I do believe this has happened. I don't think the Bible's making a science error. No, I don't think that's what it is. So when you come across, as we examine oceanography today, and we find things when science and the Bible disagreed, like Matthew Murray was finding stuff all frequently, we've seen. And we will continue to see in the series that science needs some time to catch up sometimes to the Bible and find out, well, we had it wrong. That's why science is constantly changing. The Bible doesn't because it's perfect. It comes to us from a perfect God. You can trust this. So science constantly change. The Bible consistently standing firm in truth. So I hope you enjoyed this lesson with us, and I hope you come back for another one. Uh, we'll be having uh, uh, some more lessons coming up with science in the Bible. Um, we have some on astronomy. We have some on human biology and, and others, and I hope you join us with those. But thank you so much for sitting with me and letting me show you some of the fascinating things here about oceanography. Take care, and God bless. hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give and help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you'd like to hear Michael live, you can check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org. And on that note, this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.